Amen. Certainly worthy to praise the great I am. Well, let's take our Bibles and look to Matthew 9 today as we're finishing up this chapter of the great account of Matthew's gospel. Today we're going to show from the Bible how we can have a powerful and life-impacting ministry like that of the apostles. And if I could ever be so bold to say, like that of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I don't know that we would ever have ministry likened to Jesus, but hear the words of Jesus. He said to his followers, greater works than these you will see and do, for I go to my Father. And what he's saying there is that I am one man at one place at one time. Now, he's the God-man, but he's still limited in time and space because he has, has limited himself. So he says, I'm going to my Father. He will send the Holy Spirit. He will come in each of you, and we will engage in ministry all over the world at every point in time. It's an amazing concept that you and I would have the power of Christ indwelling us that we might ministry, do ministry to the impact of Christ and his disciples. So over the past few Sundays, we've been reading about some of that. We've been in a section of Matthew where the the illumination of the miracles of Christ are testifying who He is as the Son of God. And those miracles have been amazing. In fact, in chapter 9 alone, we've seen some of the most substantial miracles that have taken place, including uh, the, the healing of people who are blind, who are mute, uh, a little girl who is raised from the dead. Uh, you have a woman who has been chronically ill for 12 years and, and uh, suffering, and Jesus heals her. He brings spiritually dark people into light like that of, of Matthew. So some amazing stuff. Now, near the conclusion of the chapter, you remember there's uh, two groups of people that give summary statements about what they have experienced about Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody kind of falls into these, one of these two categories, but at least in this section of Matthew's account, it's the case. And the two go something like this. You have one that says, wow, we've never seen anything like this in all of Israel. Now, that's a statement of fact, not a statement of faith. And you've got to be understanding of that. Just because people are wowed by God does not mean that they are in faith in God. And God is not calling you just to be wowed by Him or to know facts of Him. God is calling you to be faithful. He's calling for you to deny self and everything else and follow after Christ Jesus. So it's a call of faith. So even though there are some that say, wow, we've never seen anything like this in Israel, does not mean that their life has been impacted in the least by that. Because if you're not engaged in faith, then you are not engaged in God. All right, then you have another summary statement that goes like this. It's really audacious. He must have his power from the devil. To do what he does, he must be empowered by the devil. All right, now what is shocking about those two things is this. Jesus is not deterred by either one of them. Jesus continues in his ministry regardless of what the summaries are stated about him. He is very much uncharacteristic to us who will gauge ministry and the effectiveness of ministry based on what other people are doing or saying. That is not the way of Christ. The ministry of Christ is successful as Christ is obedient to the commission of the Father. And everything in His ministry is gauged on that. 
Am I bringing glory and honor to my Father by obediently responding to Him and the call that He has given to me and the Holy Spirit who is guiding me? And in every day of His life, that's exactly what He's doing. So even though there are rejectors and deniers around Him, He continues on in His ministry because it is not gauged on the people, it's gauged on the call. That's a big lesson for us. Because you and I will have our detractors and we will have distractions. But we must continue on in ministry. Even though there may be deniers, we continue on because the commission is not based on what other people are responding or how they're responding or what they're saying. It's based solely on the commission of Christ Jesus for our living. We need to walk in the obedience of Christ regardless of what is happening around us. Good or bad, we still remain obedient to the call of Christ because when it's going well it's pretty easy to go along and when it's not going well it's not so easy but if your focus is on I have heard the commission of Christ in my life to live my life surrendered unto him and to do my things unto the glory of him no matter what my family says, my friends say, my neighbors say, my co-workers say, or the detractors say in my life, I will carry on. That's a good place to be. And Jesus is helping us to see that in this section of Scripture. Now, I want to point four to four things in this section, beginning in verse 35 of chapter 9, going on through the first five verses almost of chapter 10. I want to make four statements Boy, we could make 40 of them, but we're only going to make four. And all God's people said amen to that. So here's the first. Jesus models for us kingdom ministry. And in this case, the kingdom ministry that he's modeling through Matthew's account is teaching, proclaiming, and healing. And that's a model for us. We're seeing this is what Jesus is doing, and this is the call of our lives as well. Look in verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages... If I were circling and underlining, it would be underlined or circled all cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So Jesus is ministering in a beautiful way that we can discover how we too ought to be engaged in ministry. You say, Randy, I'm not a minister. I, I'm a business person or I work in a shop or I'm in the hospital or you know, whatever it is you do. Every one of us are engaged in ministry no matter where we're engaging it. So if you're uh, working second shift on Goodyear, you're a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and your assignment is second shift Goodyear. Or if you're third shift hospital, your assignment to minister in the name of Jesus Christ is third shift hospital. Or wherever you are, whatever it is that you're doing, it's to be engaged in ministry unto the things of Christ. And the model is the same. And Jesus is helping us to discover the model. And what he's doing, what he is modeling for us is the same thing that he is instructing of us. In the end of the, end of the, uh, the book of Matthew, we're going to find this commission of Christ for us to go and make disciples of all nations, right? So guess what Jesus is doing? He's going and making disciples. And in this case, verse 35, he's going in all the cities and all the villages, going to the synagogue, and he is making disciples. So he's modeling this for us. Now, collectively, you and I can do great things. Individually, we struggle. Because when we hear, go and make the name of Christ known to all the nations, we might think, how am I going to do that? 
Well, God is not asking you specifically to go into all the nations as much as He is for you to be obedient to His call among the nations where you are, and then collectively we pull together one body and we can touch every nation and every tongue and every tribe. The point is, are you obedient in the places where God has placed you? Are you making disciples where you are? Today we have, right now, in Africa, we have a team that's there, and guess what they're doing? They're making disciples. And last week we had a team in Argentina, guess what they were doing? Making disciples. In a few days we've got a team going to northern Uganda to the refugee camps, guess what they're doing? Making disciples. In a few days we'll have a a group going to Entebbe, guess where, what they're going to be doing in Entebbe? Making disciples. All next week we've got great work with Kid Quest, with hundreds of kids, guess what we're doing? Making disciples. Uh, tomorrow, some of you are getting up and going to work. There's not a collective side of that, but guess what you're going to be doing? Making disciples. Because that's what we do. That's the model that Christ demonstrates for us. So Jesus is very intentional about that. Now notice, when he's going to all the villages and all the cities, guess where he heads first? To the synagogue. Because where you find, what, who you find in the synagogue are people that are seeking after God. It's what we would call seekers. So he goes there first. Paul did the same thing. It's a pattern that Paul picked up on from Jesus. And we should do the same thing. Now what I mean by that is, you and I often think about discipleship outside of the walls of the church. But the ministry pattern established by Jesus and replicated by Paul and should be engaged by us is to look where the seekers are. And guess where the seekers are this morning? They're in the walls of the church. Today, the Spirit of God has brought people into this place, some of them for the very first time, because they are seeking after God. They want to know more about God. They want to know about His Word. They want to know about His life in them. They want to discover the things of God. And Jesus would be here, certainly we would have him on platform teaching, but you know what? He would be here before and he would be here after to engage the seekers as if it were the synagogue. Now I'm going to kind of go out on a limb here and just ask a question. How many people have you spoken to today that you did not know prior to you walking in here? If we're not careful, we'll hang out with our friends, with our life group, and the people that we know in this room. And all the while, the Holy Spirit has brought people here who are seeking Him. And if we were like Jesus, modeling His ministry, we would make a beeline to them. Hey, my name's Randy. What's yours? I'm glad you're here today. Would you like to sit with me? We'll worship together. We'll study God's Word together. Hey, you got somewhere you want to go for lunch? I'd be happy to go. Uh, here's my phone. Here's my number. Would you text me this week? Would you allow me to text you? Maybe we can get in touch with one another just to encourage one another. This is what God would be doing, no doubt. So he'd be here on Sunday morning engaging the people that the Spirit of God is bringing here, as we should be. Guess where he would be tonight? I would say most probably Walmart at 10 o'clock. Have you been to Walmart at 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday night? I don't know where those people live, but they are not living in and around my community. This is not meant to be a, a downward angled comment. This is meant to be an encouraging comment. The people at 10 o'clock at Walmart are a whole different people that's in this room. 
If you want to be part of international missions, go to Walmart at 10 o'clock on Sunday night. It's a whole different world out there. So guess where Jesus would be on a Sunday evening? He'd be at Walmart. And if we're going to model our life after him, we're going to need to do the same kind of thing. Now, I don't know about you, but at 9.30 at night, I'm trying to convince Kay, it's time. Are you ready to, to go and settle in for the night? She's already been asleep an hour and a half on the couch. <laughs> but going out at 10 o'clock just doesn't seem natural to us unless you've chosen to live your life as a model ministry after Jesus, a life of ministry modeled after him. I sometimes go to bed with the can't wait to get up in the morning to have my coffee attitude. Okay, and I love our coffee in the morning. But you know, some of the best times to have a cup of coffee and have conversation with people, mid-morning and mid-afternoon. If you want to engage people, that's the time. They're more relaxed. They're more, they're more apt to have discussion with you. Maybe we ought to change the time that we have coffee. If you're from Latin America, your whole schedule is way different than ours. And when we're starting to settle down, you're just now perking up. Maybe if you want to engage Latin Americans or Muslims, then you ought to engage 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night in the places where they can sit down and have conversation with their friends. That's where Jesus would be. Jesus might have gone to Jack's or Hardy's yesterday morning and ordered an unleavened biscuit gravy, no sausage, sit down at the table of someone who's eating alone and say, may I join you? Because he's filled with compassion. The point is, when Matthew says that Jesus goes to all the villages and the cities and goes to the synagogue, what he's saying is Jesus is purposefully interacting with people so that they might know him and know about him and he might disciple them. This is what our call is. This is what our life is. But if we're not careful, we will live in the culture without engaging the culture. And we will miss the opportunities that Christ has called us to take. Are you okay? Are you with me? I didn't think so. This is radical, isn't it? It will throw your schedule completely upside down. It will make your Leisure time no longer yours. But this is the way of compassion. This is the way of amazing ministry. Intentionally making disciples for the purpose of engaging them in the things of Christ. So what would you do if you sat down with somebody and had conversation with them? Or you picked up conversation? There's three statements. I did not write them in the handout. It was a mistake for me not to do that. But I have them on the screen right now. So you might want to jot them down. These are three things that I think you could say in almost every situation that you're in conversation with somebody. The first is this. The Bible has something to say about that. Now, you and I ought to be reading God's Word every day. Don't just wait for me to give it to you. God has given us His Word, and He will teach us by His Spirit, so we ought to be engaged in it every day. Now, catch this. If you read God's Word every day, it will be deposited in you. No matter how good your memory is or how bad it is, it will be deposited in you and you will be shocked at how the Holy Spirit will just draw it up. It's like a wellspring and he'll 
tap down into that reservoir of reading his word, and he will pull it out of you. So when you say the Bible has something to say about that, then it's likely the Holy Spirit is going to help you to utter what that is. Now, guess what? Sometimes you just get stumped. Oh, yeah? What's the Bible have to say about that, Gunner? I'll get back with you. Let me, I'll go Google for a minute and be back. Just circle back around. It's okay to say, I'm going to get back with you on that because I want the answer to be well. I want it to be spoken well. The Bible has something to say about that. A couple of days ago, I was in conversation with a couple of gentlemen who make their living outside and uh, their life is contingent upon the weather. And, of course, we've had a lot of wet weather lately, and we have some more wet weather coming. And so they're really hurting right now. They can't do what all they need to get done with the weather as it is. And so it gave me an opportunity to talk about the weather, specifically rain, and said, you know, the Bible has something to say about that. He says that he lets it rain on the just and the unjust. So no matter which category you're in, God is gracious, and he provides rain. Now, it might be in more measure than we want right now, but God's goodness is extended to those who are good to him and those who are not good to him. It's his nature. I didn't have to go into a long message about that. I just proclaimed what the Bible had to say about that. And in that moment, they were being discipled with the word of God. All right, second statement is this. God's kingdom is reconciling all things. This is a testimony of Colossians where Christ is reconciling all things to himself. And so when people talk to you about the brokenness of life, or the need for healing, or uh, relationships that are fractured, or jobs that are lost, or whatever, you can say to them, hey, it's not always going to be this way, for God is reconciling all things to himself. There's coming a day that it's going to be different. There's coming a day when things are going to be radically different, and all this struggle that you're talking about now is going to be reconciled for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a great statement of truth. Or the third is this, Jesus can meet your need and make you whole. This is part of the healing. So whatever it is that they're talking about, hey, Jesus can meet that need and Jesus can make you whole. Why don't we ask him about that? Now, that means that you don't have to have a long litany of things to discuss with them. You're just making statements with them about Scripture and about Christ. You're pointing them to the kingdom of God. And maybe it will open up conversation. Maybe it won't. Maybe you're going to be a planter. Maybe you're going to be a harvester that day. Maybe you're going to be a nurturer that day. But just do it in the ministry and compassion that Jesus has given us. All right, so teaching, proclaiming, and healing is how Jesus engages. Secondly, we see this, that Jesus reveals in this section the motive for ministry, and that's compassion. Chapter 9, verse 36 says this, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep, without a shepherd. So those two words, harassed and helpless, are pretty potent words. Maybe you're going to read out of your Bible, it's a different translation. You probably have different words there because there's a lot of translations that try to figure out what these words are. Rather than define them, can I give you a picture? Because this first word for harassed is the same thing that describes you working the ground with a hoe. What you're doing to the ground is harassing it. That's the word that he uses. And this helpless is as if you have picked something up and tossed it out. So now if Jesus is seeing himself as a good shepherd, which he, he does, and he sees these people around harassed and helpless as sheep without a shepherd, we get a better picture that the harassed are those who might be 
uh, coming under attack by the predators and they're harassing. They're, they're breaking them apart. They're splitting them out and then they're casting them out. Jesus is seeing people as that. So when he hears them say, man, we've never seen anything like this in Israel, but it's not backed up with faith, he doesn't see that as a rejection or a denial or even shortcoming. He sees that, oh, they're sheep who are without a shepherd and they are harassed and helpless in their position. The ones that have been leading them in religion are like hoeing them and picking them up and casting them out. That's the way he sees them. Now, the reason why that's important is the way we see people will either move us to them in ministry or it will cause us to pull away from them in the flesh. So Jesus sees them as the Spirit sees them and he moves to them The opposite of that would be to see them in the flesh and pull back from them. We want to press towards them as Christ is pressing towards them. And the the pressing towards, the purpose of that, and the the, uh, motive of that is compassion. So he inwardly sees differently. So if we're not careful, we'll just look at the external. Let me just remind you of two or three examples of Jesus doing this. He's side by side with a woman who's obviously uh, been engaged in fornication. She's sexually impure. And he engages her. There's the front that people see and the labels that people have given. But Jesus looks deeper into the heart issue and he says, I see a heart that's empty and looking to be filled in all the wrong places. I will offer her me as a drink of water by which if she takes of my refreshment, she will never thirst again. See how he does that? Everybody else in the flesh pulls away from her. Why do you think she's at the well by herself? Jesus doesn't do that. He sees with the Spirit's purity and he moves towards her to meet her need compassionately. Or there's a man who has this persona of religion as if he's got it all together. It's real pious, a real real uppity kind of guy who says, I've obeyed all the commands. Jesus looks to the inner issue of that man and he sees the emptiness and the hopelessness of materialism. The inexhaustible craving for more. And he says, to meet the need, he's going to have to get rid of everything. He hears the denier. He hears the one who's not very given in faith. And rather than rejecting him, he sees an empty heart who has a real hope and longing for the Messiah to come. He just hasn't yet discovered who the Messiah is. Over and over in the life of ministry that Jesus lives, he moves in compassion towards people. If you and I are not careful, we'll pull back from them. And all the while, Jesus wanted us to move forward towards them. So by the Spirit, Jesus can train us. He can fill us first with His nature, which is compassion. And then He can train us to see people as He sees them. And when we do, we'll be more inclined to see them as harassed and helpless, in need of a shepherd who will guide them as a discipler guides a disciple. Compassion moves towards hurting people, and that's what we ought to do. 
Compassion introduces them to a kingdom of peace and the gateway to the kingdom, who is Jesus Christ. Compassion doesn't merely warn people or rebuke people. It woos people, calling them to discover who Jesus is by living out and testifying in the words of Christ. If compassion was a glorious beam of light that moved through a prism so that the light could be separated, it would be separated to love, mercy, and grace. So the compassion is love, mercy, and grace. So our prayer ought to be, fill us with love, compassion, uh, excuse me, grace and mercy, and let it be demonstrated with compassion. This is what we're seeing Christ do. And certainly this is the call in our life. So that we would be compassionate. You ever been in the checkout line and the person that's checking you out just having one of those attitudes? You've got an option. You can pull back or you can press forward. To press forward means, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but on the external, I don't like it. You know what's going on on the in- internal. Let me press to that. Let me press to help that heart. Maybe it's the waiter. It just is unkind. Gotten things all messed up. you got a moment. And the moment could either be, I don't like your attitude or I don't like your service. Or the moment could be, there's a need in you just like there's a need in me. And Jesus wants to meet it. And I'm going to be the one that's going to press towards meeting that need according to God's goodness, His love, His mercy, His grace. You might even say, some don't deserve it. And I would agree. Neither do I. But God's compassion was moved towards me, and even so. Maybe it's the annoying neighbor. Do you have one of those? Yeah, I do too. You say, well, preacher, I don't have one of those. Guess what? Everybody else in the neighborhood knows it's you. (laughs) The question is for the annoying neighbor, are you going to pull back? Or are you going to say, something's going on in the heart of that person that I ought to press towards with love, mercy, and grace. And in doing so, reveal compassion. You say, well, they may rebuff that. They may reject that. They may deny that. Oh, the call doesn't matter, the response of the people. The glory and the honor comes in the obedience to the call. So you just press on regardless. And in the end, God will reward you in a very handsome way for all eternity. Now, when this happens, this ministry model, as Jesus has demonstrated, when it happens to the level of godliness, then amazing things happen. Now, remember the model. It's teaching, proclaiming, and healing. Now, think about some of the great things that have happened throughout the United States as Christians and churches begin to exercise that model. Now, although they're not given to God today, the origination of some of the greatest institutions of education come from Christians, come from churches. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oxford are all rooted in Christian work. Sanford University in Birmingham, rooted in Christian work from Alabama Baptists. Those institutions came from people who discovered the model of compassion, of teaching and proclaiming, and they moved towards that. That ought to continue. 
When you and I drive down through Gadsden, either on Rainbow Drive or on Megan, and we pass either one of the two hospitals, it ought to move us to compassion. Not just to be compassionate towards the people there, but it ought to be a testimony of compassion. Because what is Gadsden Regional, if you're an old-timer, you know it as Baptist Hospital. It was a pool of churches, Southern Baptist churches in this county who pooled resources together in the Etowah Baptist Association who bought a 35-room hospital and grew it, multiplied it, moved it to its current location, multiplied it many times over and have serviced tens of thousands of people until 1993 when it was sold to a conglomerate. When you pass by Riverview, you might not know it as Riverview Regional, you might know it as Holy Name of Jesus. And the reason why you know it is that is because a group of nuns got together with compassion, decided that they wanted to bring healing of Jesus to this community, and we're grateful for it, are we not? So those two are testimonies of Christians who have gone before us and said, we want to exercise the model of teaching, proclaiming, and healing to the community. Our models today are somewhat different, but they ought to be demonstrating that. Open Hands of Etowah County is a Meadowbrook ministry serviced and provided for by Meadowbrook people by the hundred. And we engage the community who is at most need. Way of the Cross is the same way. Engaging the community who are in most need for the purpose of showing the compassion of Jesus Christ. But now catch this. The organization of compassion ministries are good and healthy. And we ought to do those. But most of the ministry happens grassroots. Most of it happens with very little organization. Most of it happens because you're moved with compassion towards somebody. Most of it happens when you have a, an ability or gift that you recognize has been given to you by God or a resource and you choose to apply it in a way that demonstrates Christ or brings someone to an understanding of who Christ is and you just do it. Or maybe you collect some friends with you or maybe your life group and you, you carry out a ministry. Can I just say my prayer has been leading into this message that God would call out some of you? That God would raise up some of you to be amazing accomplishers for His kingdom. That the, the workings of Christ with teaching and proclaiming and healing would be yours and it would be exercised to the level that Christ did it and His apostles did it as well. So I don't know that I can do that. Did we not sing the song to begin the service? The same power that rose Christ from the grave is alive in us today. Did we not rejoice in that song? Did you not raise your hand to that? Did you not raise your voice to that to testify of that truth? I hope you did. Because it's a truth. The same power that resurrected Christ is very much alive in you. The question is, will you be obedient to the call? Let Him empower you in significant ways to disciple, to go in the cities and the villages, to teach, to proclaim, and to bring healing. The third is this, that Jesus informs us of the power of ministry, and the power of ministry comes in prayer. He says in verse 37 and 38 to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. You know, for ministry, planning is important. But praying is essential. We can plan all day long, but if there's no prayers, there's no power. Jesus really singles out prayer 
raising it to the highest priority in life and ministry. In fact, he doesn't call the disciples to more vigorous action in ministry. He calls them to more prayer. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send harvesters. In the economy of God, this is the way it works. You pray, and the power of God moves and stirs long before the actions begin. For instance, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter begins to preach. And this message and the proclaimer is absolutely astounding. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ Jesus. But I'm kind of going out on a limb to say this. The power is not in the proclaimer, and the power is not in the words of the proclaimer. The power is in the prayers of the people for the proclaimer and for the word to be delivered. In fact, in Acts 1.14, it says just that, that the disciples, along with the women, got together and they devoted themselves to prayer. And it's out of prayer that comes the, the great empowerment so that thousands of people are saved. Or the first sending missionary church, Antioch, before they commissioned Saul and Barnabas to go out, they are a praying church first, long before they commissioned anybody to go out. Where there is prayer, there is power. In fact, all the great awakenings and the revivals that start in the United States or around the world, every one of them never starts with a preacher. They always start with a prayer. Are you willing to be that one? Are we willing to be that church? Are we just going to keep trying to be more effective and more energetic without the empowerment of prayer? Prayer doesn't just make it better. Prayer makes it. It's the only power source we have. It's the mechanism by which God stirs and moves. And the reason might be this, that when I am effective in my planning and bring about the plan, then it brings glory to man. But when I am praying and God brings it about, it brings glory to him. God empowers what brings him glory. So often we jump right over praying just to get to the doing. I want to do something for God. We jump right over the praying to get to the doing. And God says, all along, Randy, what I wanted to do was going to be accomplished. I was inviting you into what I was going to do. And the means by which you define the access there is prayer. Man, did you ever miss it. And he would say that for all of us. If you're not praying, you're not empowered. And you're certainly not joining God in what he's doing. You might come up with some great civic duties, and you might do it all in the name of religion or Jesus, but the empowerment, according to Jesus, is in prayer. Sometimes we might say, uh, okay, Randy, I'll just pray about it. And you might take the words of Jesus very literally, which I think you should. Pray to the Lord of harvest that he would send out workers for the harvest. But notice there's a coupling here. He tells the disciples, don't just pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers. Jesus then turns around and commissions them to be the workers that they were praying God to send. So the way I would visualize this, it's like this. Lord, send workers for the harvest. And at the same time you're praying that, you're putting on your work gloves. It would be something according to, 
Lord, send workers for the harvest, and here I am, send me. Are you willing to be that kind of praying in faith individual who is empowered to do what God has commissioned you and me to do? And then the fourth thing is that Jesus multiplies and authorizes us for ministry by commissioning the church. Now we're into chapter 10, verses 1 through the first part of 5. And he called them, his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the 12 apostles are these. First Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. And James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sends out. So he's, he's listing the 12 in the partnerships by which they were commissioned to go out. Now here's a, a pretty good process that we're seeing. And the first is that God sent his son Jesus, the incarnate, God incarnate, to begin the ministry. And that's what we've been reading about, the ministry of Jesus. And it's powerful. And then we read that Jesus is commissioning the twelve to go out in, in pairs, and he's giving them power and authority to do so. So that's the second part of the process. But the apostles are not going to live on earth forever, but there will be future generations, and those future generations will make up the church by which the apostles are laying the foundation for from the teachings of Jesus. So now you have the commissioning of the church, and the way it ends, the book ends of Matthew, it's Jesus saying, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go and make disciples. In other words, I've been doing this, I commissioned the 12 to do this, and now I send you to do this. All right, now hang on with me. You're still with me, right? Because we're almost there. We're rounding third. We would have no problem in saying that Jesus was authoritative and powerful to do effective ministry for the kingdom of God, right? No problem with that. We would have no problem saying that there is power and authority that has been given to the apostles to carry out the commission that Christ has given to them. No problem with that. But we have a problem thinking that the church today is powerful and authoritative like that of Jesus and the apostles, and that is a problem. Because he is not diminished. His power is not diminished. His call is not diminished. His longing to do great work in this world is not diminished. The problem is we interpret it as being diminished because we don't experience it then how about we get on our face and begin to earnestly call out in prayer that God would do the powerful in us for his glory how about we get on our face and choose Lord if it means getting out of the house at 10 o'clock to go to Walmart to engage a whole nother culture I'm willing to do it Lord if it means changing the time I drink coffee I'm willing to do it Lord if it means Second shift at Goodyear is my ministry platform. I'm willing to do it. But I need to be powered. I need to be empowered. I need your word coming into me every day and deposited in me so that the Spirit of God can pull it out at any time he so chooses. I need that kind of power. I need power to be able to teach and to proclaim his word. I need the power to be able to heal and make people whole in the name of Jesus Christ. God, I'm asking for that because you commissioned me to do it. It's not a selfish prayer. In fact, it's everything but that. So I'm just going to tell you, it's going to turn your life upside down. And if you're engaged in this culture without engaging the culture, 
people, then it's going to flip you upside down when you start to see people differently than you are now. And your purpose of living life is different than it is right now. Change your life totally. But that's the kingdom of God. That's what we've been brought into. So Jesus has chosen us uniquely to carry out his kingdom ministries. And I pray that we'll believe him, trust him. Now let me ask you to an invitation to respond to him today. Are your thoughts like that of Jesus? You see people in a way that brings you to them, not pulls you away from them. Are you seeing the actions, hearing the words of people who are harassed and helpless? And are you pulling back from that? Pulling back from the addict? Pulling back from the abused or the abuser? Pulling back from the denier, the rejecter? And all the while, Jesus has been wanting you to see them differently and pull to them. To see them as a sheep without a shepherd and called you to shepherd them in discipleship. Are you seeing as Christ sees? Is your motivation like his motivation with compassion, love, mercy, and grace? Would you be willing today to pray that he would fill you with that? Your prayer might go something like this, Lord, fill my thoughts with your thoughts. Let my eyes see as you see. Lord, empower me for compassion ministry like that which you demonstrated and the apostles and you've commissioned the church to do. Let me be ever mindful throughout my day to teach, proclaim, and to heal, to bring wholeness in the name of Jesus. I can tell you that's a prayer that's honorable, and Christ will honor it. Why don't we just pray that now? With your head bowed and your eyes closed. Calling out to the Father. In a heartfelt way, Lord, we ask that you would help us because what we're about to pray goes against the flesh that we were born with. It goes against the culture that is surrounding us. So we pray for kingdomness. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and thoughts to think that are right and pure and noble, persistent with love, mercy, and grace, and expressed with compassion. We pray, Lord, that we would press towards people who have a tendency to push people away and that we would do so to meet the need of the heart in the name of Jesus. We pray that you would give us wise counsel and authority from the holy position of heaven. And we pray in the end that your kingdom would be grown and that the name of Jesus would be called out all the more because of it for his glory. And his name, I pray. Amen.